Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Hart, we know Hart mentions uh, Zizek in passing too. I, I guess I shouldn't be surprised that you know, he was familiar with him. Yeah, he's quite dismissive. He form, he's a performance artist. Yeah, yeah. I, I wonder how much he's actually engaged with him, you know. Um, I'm guessing that guys like Hart are not at all impressed with Lacan. But I, I could be wrong. But Lacan, you know, these guys are such strange characters that I think they're kind of, they're off-putting in their personalities. Mm-hmm. And people don't get to what they're saying because they're all caught up. In, and Zizek's sort of the same. He is kind of a performance artist. But that doesn't mean that he's not actually saying something. Right. Dan is here, but he has no camera and he has no mic. Ah, so we can so he can hear us, but so we can talk for him, but not talk about him. Uh, That's right. We can make fun of him, and he can't. Can he? Can, can he say message? Oh, he said a message though. Yeah. There we, you go. I try, Rob. You were trying to get in, and I was trying to answer Gino, and I can't actually do two things at once. Hey, Alan. Dios te bendiga. Igualmente. How's it going? Good to see you. Alan, uh, you had a frightening picture. I just couldn't believe it was like prehistoric of a scorpion. Was that what it was? What's it called? The centipede? Centipede. Centipede, yeah. But it looked like an alien centipede from like the, like, you know, from a horror movie. Yeah, no, it was, it was huge. I've never seen anything that big before. It could carry small children off. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and unfortunately, I had to kill him because. And my cat was nearby, and I was like, ah, it's either my cat or that weird thing. Yeah, yeah, no, that was worth, worthy of catching and preserving or something. My son were there, he would he would want to put it in a cage and make it a pet or something. Yeah, I, I would have done something similar, but I don't, really have, I don't think my wife was going to be happy about it. <laughs> no, probably not. I tried to listen to my own lecture today, and I fell asleep. And I thought, well, that's not a good song. (laughs) So I hope it was more thrilling for you. But I I have to admit, you know, Dave, you're talking about going out and working out. Uh, You know, I had that tree fall in my yard. And this morning, the guy that he owns the or did own the local lumber mill, he was out in the backyard with us helper and they were out there chopping up logs i didn't even know they were out there so i went back there they were splitting logs and so i got to splitting logs i don't know if any of you have ever tried to split a log i thought i was gonna die right there (laughs) swing the sledgehammer and then i got a a pickaxe and was i hit myself in the ankle with the pickaxe and man i i would just wore myself out splitting logs nathan good to see you did you have a good vacation? Yeah, yeah. Have you ever heard of uh, Hope, BC? No. 1849. That's where they would start the gold rush up through all of northern British Columbia, the one that extended all the way down to California. So yeah, was, right. you were Hope, you were going to make a fortune. Oh, oh, oh I should <laughs> yeah, not. Well, they, they, uh, we did stop and learn all about that, the Othello tunnels, all named after Shakespeare, uh, Shakespeare characters, because I guess, you know, one of the 
business people. But up to that point, all silver and gold went down to Spokane, Washington. So Canada was uh, urgently looking to uh, not, you know, to, to make their own money and not to have it be sent down to the U.S. So that's why they like ferociously like built this um, railroad from uh, Nelson, B.C. to Vancouver. So that's a little bit of the story where we were camping is is around that, where the story yeah, you, of that started, sort of thing. Yeah, you guys were colonizing us. <laughs> well, uh, you know, I, I as a boy, of course, I was a big fan of Jack London, and Jack London. I think that was actually up in. You know, we always think of it as Alaska, but I think isn't he was actually in Canada, uh, the Klondike, uh, and he wasn't up there. He was only up there a year. And he never wanted to go back, uh, but he spent the rest of his life mining, you know, stories from. He never never got any gold, but he mined the the stories for the rest of his life. I have a lot of experience eating Klondike bars. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Today we were supposed to have done chapter three. This is the part that ties into philosophy, and so if you get. Chapter one and two, I think for this one is sort of obvious that we're doing Hegel, we're doing Schelling, we're doing uh, Heidegger even. But my claim would be is it's not just these guys, but here is the before and after philosophy. That is that prior to this, the diagnosis of the sickness wasn't there, but now we have the, you know, the sickness is coming up front. I made some notes, but there's a sentence, um, the death of God in Christ makes of death an absolute that would undermine any ontotheological, epistemological approach to truth. This was something I was wondering about. Nathan, I was reading through my own book, and occasionally I have the same experience that everybody else does. I think, oh, I wonder what I meant there. <laughs> but, uh, I think the idea here is that, you know, we are undoing ontotheology. A bit of the history, we may, we may have talked about this a little bit last week. Luther actually is combating the notion of, the, of scholasticism and the, the God of the philosophers and the theologians of glory. And the way he does this, he talks about that God died on the cross. The point is not to split apart the deity and the humanity. And then Hegel will actually pick up the phrase, you know, that God died on the cross. And of course, what Luther meant by this is that you cannot come to God in and through a kind of ontotheology or a kind of imagining that we can posit these transcendent truths of reason apart from the incarnate Christ. And Hegel, of course, is going to take that a step further and say, yeah, we can't do that because God himself is tied to human history. There is an emptying out, or at least the attempt with Luther, and then it's, you know, with Hegel, and then obviously the next step is Friedrich Nietzsche, in which God is dead is actually, you can trace the genealogy of that phrase. Hegel's pronouncement of the death of God, is that it? Yeah, that, yeah, that paragraph, I guess. Is Un, unlike the atheistic denial of God, does not presume to pass over the negation of the unconscious. 
That is that what Hegel is going to do is make a, he's going to reify or make death or nothingness. It's a kind of reified nothingness. It's so just the opposite. The death of God in Christ points to the absolute mediation of negation as it is experienced in death. And so what Hegel is doing is saying that death then is as an absolute something that God has to take up into himself to be completely divine. Even God must die in Christ. You know, we've shifted here. I hope everybody perceives that. We're not doing orthodoxy anymore. this This is Hegelian heterodoxy. The death and resurrection are traditionally co-opted in a Chalcedonian distinction in the God-man, which in turn testifies to the split in the human condition between the body and immortal soul. I, I would agree a little bit here and with Zizek and Hegel and what they're doing, and that is that the subject of language in the Cartesian cogito, there's always a split between the thinking thing and the thing that's thought. And so what Hegel is suggesting is that split is not uh, an artificial split, but it testifies to the split in the human condition. Jesus often simply serves as another evidence that death is not important. In other words, what Hegel wants to do is to fully affirm the historicity and more strongly the historicism of God, that God is unfolding. You know, in this, Hegel is a kind of, process theologian, maybe the original process theologian. Uh, The death of God in Christ makes of death an absolute that would undermine any epistemological approach to truth. Hegel's dialectic is not between two separate ontological categories. He undermines this traditional dualism between heaven and earth or the, the future versus the present. For Hegel, death constitutes an internal and determinate negation rather than a sudden disruptive event that strikes from without. That is, that death is determinative of who God is and who humans are. I don't know if you've read any, you know, Schelling. Schelling was, they were buddies, you know, they were college roommates. And I always think they're doing a similar project, that Schelling is actually in his, is trying to describe you know, how did creation start? If you listen to the thing I did on Hegel, the podcast, that was a bit of what I was talking about, that, you know, nothing constrained God or that there was nothing beside God, but the nothing itself is something that God then begins to take up into himself, that death is a necessary and inseparable aspect of spirit, an analog of the spirit. So the death of God in Christ makes of death an absolute that would undermine any ontotheological, epistemological approach to truth. So we can't presume to pass over, which is what ontotheology does. Ontotheology is presuming a kind of primary positive notion that the truth resides in language, or that language is a means to God per se. That is, language per se is a means to God. This is Zizek, but once you see it, you know, the idea here is that that we're talking about an orientation to language that's taking place in philosophy, and we've talked about the first orientation is that language speaks, 
I've been reading, and I'm not recommending the book, but it's kind of a uh, interesting, kind of a fascinating illustration. Have, do any of you know who Julian Jaynes is? By Chemical Mine? Yeah, yeah. I don't know if I buy it, but at least it's an illustration of what we're talking about. And that is that his, his notion is that the brain in the beginning was split, that there was a clear split between the two hemispheres of the brain, and that the left hemisphere literally speaks and the right hemisphere listens. And so that people perceive the voice in their head as an objective voice, as an authoritative voice. And he goes through all sorts of phenomena, you know, a little bit of philosophy, but, uh, but religion and mental illness and hypnosis. It is a fascinating picture. I thought he should have had a chapter on philosophy, that he could do the same thing. What I would say is that what he's describing, I don't know that you need the, the evolution or the, the biology there. I'm not sure this is a biological fact. It may be. I'm not... I'm not denying it might not be. And that is that there may have been a time that like schizophrenics today, that everybody simply heard the voice in their head. And of course, that voice is not an individualistic voice. It's a voice that's shaped by culture, by the authorities in the society, that they hear that voice, the voice of the law, the voice of the father, the voice of God and presume that that is an authoritative word from God. We can just use that as an illustration of, I think, what the first half of philosophy is doing. It's just presuming that we arrive at the truth through language. That is, the Platonic notion of the forms, all we have to do is arrive at the forms. And so there is no questioning of an orientation to language or of a relationship between language and reality. That sounds a lot like Paul's description of the role of the law in an illegitimate understanding of Judaism, that the law is the mediating force with God, that the law is what we know of God, and, the, and a, a mistaken Christianity would just reconcile us to the law, or if you put it in Zizakian terms, or even Julian James, that we would just re-reconcile to the voice in our head as if it is authoritative. So that's stage one. Stage two, then, we're moving into with, with Hegel. And what they're recognizing in this section is the subject is an effect of language. That is, they've moved into the subject himself. Rather than speaking, you know, a speaking subject, the subject himself is spoken by language, is a way of saying this. The speaking subject is a cover for the one not speaking. He is distinct from what he says. So just think here, you know, if this gets confusing, just always go back to the Cartesian cogito. The thinking thing and the thought, prior to Kant's questioning of that and Hegel's mining of that, people just presumed that the the Cartesian cogito worked. I think, therefore, I am. That is, what is the human condition? It's a drive to fuse being and language. But that's a sickness, man. 
Well, I was going to say you have a you have a really nice quote on page sixty two that I think sums this up what you're saying pretty well, and I just wanted to see if you'd comment on it a little further. But right in the middle of the page, um, on sixty two, you say so the subject arrives on the scene missing something, and the various neuroses and psychoses display different means of dealing with this absence or loss. The symptom, however, that is displayed in mental sickness and philosophy consists of the same cause the desire to fuse thought and being. The self is at stake in the attempted fusion of thought and being, and the inevitable failure results in neuro- neuroses and psychoses, to say nothing of theology and philosophy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> an interesting way to put it. So I just want to see, I think that goes along with what you're saying, but I wanted you to see if maybe you could comment a little bit more. Yeah, that's precisely what I'm saying. And thought and being is what ontotheological uh, onto stuff is, right? Like, that's all it is. It's yeah, just exactly. that... Uh, when you when those two things are thought together or reduced or whatever, I'm never quite sure why people don't go back to Anselm of Canterbury, because he's almost just literally saying this in the ontological argument. He's just saying you think this argument with me, and you thought the name of God, but you've also thought yourself into who God is. That's really what he's saying. So I always think the ontological argument. If you don't understand what people are talking about with ontotheology, just think Anselm. Oh, I'm going to think the name of God. I'm going to be God, because that's what he's describing in the ontological argument. You're going to fuse thought and being, and you're going to be, and to be, of course, to, to be immortal, to be not subject to finitude, to the body, to death. So you're thinking your way out of finitude, you're thinking your way out of death. You're thinking yourself into a deity, into an ontological ground, that you become, your thought becomes the ontological ground of being. I think all of that is just a fancy way of saying, you know, Shakespeare says to be or not to be. That is the question. What we're describing is just a basic drive that we have as humans. Oh, I want to be somebody you can establish being philosophically, you can establish, you know, you can do it in a myriad of ways. So all I see that we're doing here is just we're articulating the basic human desire that normally doesn't get articulated. But I think this drive to being, which is already a a sign that you don't have it, if you're driven to obtain it, if this is the basic human desire, then this is the human sickness. The human sickness is, and this is what, you know, is death drive. It is this basic existential imagining that we, uh, of establishing being. But of course, what you get at, once you split this up with Kant and Hegel is that the deception of it, that the person is distinct, you know, the thought and the thing that thinks, And the speaking subject, you know, this is where you get into the lie, a deception, that this is the primordial deception in Lacan. But you understand, you know, I'm focused on this. It's there in Zizek and Lacan. I don't think I'm exaggerating it at all. And that is that their picture of the human subject is the subject is completely a byproduct of this thing that we're describing. Uh, Zizek is going to call himself a Cartesian, 
But of course, what he means by that is not what, you know, what people usually mean by that. He means, oh yeah, I understand. This is a trick. This is a lie. This is, there's a gap between the thinking thing and the thought. But he says, we need that gap. We need that deception because it's over that deception that human subjectivity arises. And so the lying subject is not the conscious subject as it is, is itself a product of a deception that is beneath his word. In other words, we, we would be through language that literally, you know, this is Freud's picture of the child, but I, I think it is that it is that tripartite construct. Well, I'm wondering what the, what's, well, you know, what's the alternative way to be? How else can we, you know, how else can we exist apart from? Well, this is your, you were just reading, it's not Bulgakov, but who is it? Bulgakov, whatever, yeah. You know, where the book is going, I know it all sounds like bad news, but of course what we're describing in the tripartite self is the role of the Trinity. What we have in this alienated condition is that we're always removed from ourselves. There's always a gap within us. And what we would do is close that gap. You can close the gap by putting a bullet in your head, or you can close the gap by om, or you know, getting rid of personality. Uh, there's a variety of ways to try to close the gap, but my point is that that is the, the basic desire maybe through an ecstatic mystical experience, maybe through, you know, ontotheology imagines that it closes the gap. But of course, what, what would close the gap? And I don't mean, this can be taken wrong. It can sound like I, I'm saying that we, we need the sickness uh, or that our experience of Christianity is the fulfillment of our perverse desire. I don't mean that. But of course, what is described in Romans chapter 8 is participation in who God is. That through the Son, that we know the Father. Let's maybe not call it a closure of the gap, but at least there is a removal of the law as the mediating factor in human, the human psyche and in human religion you know, in the human sense. And so this notion of participation in God. You quote, uh, you quote Zizek from Tearing with the Negative on 69. We do not pass from Kant to Hegel by filling out the empty place of the thing, by affirming this void as such in its priority to any positive entity that strives to fill it out. The goal is not to, is to like recognize how our, uh, the subject is kind of constituted by this, this lack or this, this void. I'm still trying to, I, 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 it's kind of difficult stuff, but like it should, is there an, should there be an attempt to just recognize that this is how, that there's this gap between like being in thought or this like kind of impasse, like an impasse of some kind and you shouldn't strive to, uh, any any like attempt of transcendence or religion or anything like that is trying to like account for a way beyond the gap beyond the void yeah yeah that's you're hitting it's a great it's an excellent question and remember that that in this portion of the book i'm always doing zizek i'm not telling you the truth yet right we're still doing zizek i'm just trying to explain zizek or lacan and what Zizek is doing with Kant 
you know, that God has all these antimonies, these, these gaps that things don't fit together. Zizek comes up with his own list of, you know, gaps. And of course, our, the impetus prior to Kant, what Zizek is going to say is Hegel is a better Kantian than Kant. Because what Kant does, he comes up with all these things as an ontic reality necessary for human thought. That is, that, that in some way, Kant's acknowledging the reality of this and the necessity of this, and yet then he wants to step back from it and still talk about it as a kind of illusion. And what Hegel is doing is saying, no, we don't close the gap. We don't picture this simply as an illusion of thought, but this is part of what reality consists of that we just acknowledge that these antinomies are there, not as a part of, of human reason or human personality, but as a part of reality itself. And that is the very reality of what it means to be human. That's why we always hit these gaps. And so that's all I'm doing there in that chat, in that phrase. I'm just describing Hegel's reaction to Kant and then Zizek's, you know, this would be a psychoanalytic move uh, that, you know, yeah, you're, you're, you know, in a Zizekian understanding, the trying to close the gap is the human sickness, trying to bridge the gap. By the time we get to the end of the book, we're going to deconstruct the three categories. And the gap in, in this is the real, is the death drive. We're not, we're not going to play the game. In other words, it's never like I'm stepping into this and saying, aha, see, we can do it after all. But we're, we're changing up the rules of the game by the end. And we're saying that this dynamic, as, has, as it has been described, yeah, that's a, I think that's an accurate description of failed humanity or of a sick humanity. You know, I don't know how you want to look at this if you want to look at this as a developing humanity. But I think that what is unfolding in Christ is a fullness of humanity that is no longer playing the, uh, the, this dynamic. You, you are not human because of the gap or the alienation or death. I think that's just precisely what Christianity is defeating, is this dynamic. We need to be careful in the way we describe it because we don't want to just step in and say, oh, I can answer the puzzle, because no, we're going to actually change the rules of the game. Well, my, I guess I'm trying to understand. I may have this first part wrong, but it sounds like you're saying part of the problem of philosophy is in its attempt to sort of articulate itself in language that there's a failure there. So if I have that right, I would want to ask, well, what makes theology so different? You know, if it's, if it's articulating itself through the medium of, of language, that would be part one. And then, and I might have that wrong, but part two is, is that it isn't what salvation or theosis or whatever, isn't it, you know, to, to fuse thought and being in the sense that we become fully integrated and joined with Christ, you know, so that our thought and our being really is, you know, fused not in a in a like with a gap like you're describing where i i don't do the thing that i want to do or i you know i, I you know that type of thing from Romans seven but that that problem's being rectified that, that that's what salvation is and so that our our thought and our being really are fused together 
in a, in a sort of an integrated way instead of the disintegrated way that Paul's describing it in Romans 7. Step one is we have to be clear what we're talking about. The, in all of this, we're just describing thought as tied to language, language per se. You understand we haven't said anything about language, but we've described it as an entity unto itself. We're going to attach ourselves to language. Doing the psychology of this almost helps us with the philosophy or what is called ontotheology. Because I think there is just this, you know, in a Lacanian understanding, what is the basic, if you had to describe the basic neurosis, it is the compulsion to repeat. What would you repeat? I mean, maybe that's a silly question. Ultimately, the, the Zizakian answer, or the Lacanian answer, is you would repeat yourself. The point is that we would establish ourselves through language per se, and the disease is to, we get stuck in, and this, what I, death drive is the compulsion to repeat. So I think you, you got to get the sickness is that we're dealing with language per se. It is language as an origin, language as primary being in and of itself. And so when we begin to talk about the Word of God, this is where I would object to Anselm of Canterbury, but maybe just to medieval theology, but certainty to, to Dun Scotus. And that is what they're going to do. They're just going to talk about the Word of God and the Word of man as if it's on a continuum, as if we can arrive at the Word of God in and through the Word of man. You know, literally, Anselm is going to talk about arriving, you know, at the place of language and, and human philosophy and thought as an alternative revelation. I, I'm doing Anselm because I just think he, he is a neat illustration of the sickness. That in some way, though, by the time what, what he wants you to do is pass beyond words per se. He's talking about Jesus. He's talking about Christ. But he says, is Christ one word or a multiplicity of words? Well, he's only one word. And so to arrive at Christ within ourselves, we arrive at this singularity, which is the source of language within us, so that we pass beyond any normative thought to the place of language per se. I think he's just described what the sickness is. In other words, for, for me, that's a better description of our problem rather than the solution. We would arrive at being through language and pass beyond any kind of normative use of language to that place in which there is only silence and nothing can be spoken. There is a history and theology, a kind of simplistic fusion of this. I think that we suffer today. I think the, the what I would call Protestantism and maybe forms of Catholicism, and hopefully all of you will say, oh, that can't be true, and but I, I think that what happened is that with Duns Scotus notion, a kind of Franciscan notion of being and language being available, you know, language being a mode to being, that we actually experience Christianity more in the mode of the disease than in the mode of the cure. So I, I think we need to be very careful how we describe who Jesus is in relationship to this dynamic that we're describing. David, you look like you're going numb on me. <laughs> I'm I'm soaking I'm soaking in this this well. 
Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm like swimming in this. <laughs> Every once in a while, there's an oxygen bubble that, that I'm able to gas. Yeah. Okay. All right. We, we're now entering into, this is really what German idealism is. The main criteria here is, well, how are you absolutely free? Well, no, the only way you can be absolutely free is that nothing constrains you. And then they're going to play with the word nothing. Yes, nothing constrains you. Absolute freedom and autonomy, by definition, cannot be constrained by a prior good. This is what Zizek is describing psychoanalytically. The absolutely free, autonomous subject can be preceded by nothing, and this is the nothing, capital N, I'm reading myself here, and negation that links, uh, Zizek links to death drive. So this is the fundamental fantasy. This is, the, was it in Blade Runner? You know, replicants. She, yeah, replicant. So she had been programmed with the Cartesian cogito, I think, therefore, I am, to prove that she's human. And, of course, the Harrison Ford character says, no, we programmed that into you. In It's a Wonderful Life, you know, George Bailey sees his life or sees the world as if he's not there. This is Zizek. Zizek just illustrates this again and again, that in the fundamental fantasy, what is counted out, is the person doing the seeing, you know, in the Cartesian understanding. This is where uh, German idealism begins. It is, Zizek would openly admit a contradiction, but yeah, it's a contradiction we need. I'm sorry to have ruined the movie for you, Alan. It's still a wonderful movie. I, I really like the old Blade Runner, and, and of course, It's a Wonderful Life may be the best movie that was ever made. What we're doing in this chapter I'm quoting me on page 56. Zizek's reading of Lacan through German idealism and his reading of German idealism through Lacan translates the problems of Lacan's three registers and his subject of a lie into the answers, into the, the dialectical materialism. You know, he's just saying Lacan is doing Hegel. He's always working this system. Once you understand what he's doing, He's always just working the same system and always playing with the gap. The goal is not to overcome the gap, but to conceive it in its becoming. This is from a footnote. There is the gap between the individual and the social, the ontological gap between the ontic and the transcendental ontological. There is the wave-particle duality of quantum mechanics and the gap between the face and the skull in neuro neurobiology. And the gap, which is the real. In other words, let's not close the gap. Let's understand, oh, those gaps are what constitute human reality. It's a kind of easy way to conceive of German idealism. And the point here is that Descartes' cogito articulates the notion of the human disease. I think this is literally true. I wouldn't even link this to modernity. I don't think this is a modern problem. I think that Descartes is just summing up for us the history of philosophy. Up to Descartes, what people would do is fuse, would obtain being through language. What you get in Kant and after is the recognition of what they're doing. As the quote Matt read, the neurosis and the theology and philosophy consist of the same thing. Since, though, as Christians, we believe that 
Christ is the word that ultimately provides the foundation for all human language and knowing and all this stuff, right? Since it, since it arises out of that sort of more foundational word, how can it be like this sort of corrupt? I, li- I like the question. I, and I think that this is the question that we need to keep coming back to. But let's just go back to Paul and the law. Has the law been corrupted? Yeah. There's no question. If you had to say, what is the point of Paul's depiction of the human predicament? He would say it's an orientation to the law. The problem is not the law. He says the law is holy, just, and good. We can say the same thing about language. And I think some people get confused with this stuff because they say, oh, you mean there's a problem with language? No, it's not a problem with language any more than it's a problem with the law. But what people would do with the law is what they would do with language. They would find life in the law. They would find life in the word and I don't mean the capital W word. I think that sometimes we just need to step back and say, you know, this all seems highly implausible. Yeah, but so does the human sickness. So do people with neurosis. So does e- so is evil. You know, just start going through and step back and, and say, well, wait a minute. Are people sick or aren't they sick? I think there is a, we're surrounded by the disease And what we're trying to do, and I think what the New Testament is doing, is giving us a prognosis of the disease. So there's no question something's wrong. We all admit, oh, there shouldn't be anything wrong in God's good universe, and it can be made right. But there's also no question things have gone off the rails, and so we're we're identifying what that is. That's actually really helpful the way that um, I feel like I kind of have a little bit of an aha moment there, because... I think that what you're describing is is that because of our misorientation to the law, the law is sort of emptied of its actual content, of its actual goodness, of its actual beauty. And so I think that you're saying the same thing with with language. You know what I mean? That if we if we have a misorientation to language, likewise in the same way, it's like, well, we've imagined that um, like you like you keep saying that language per se can give us access to reality i guess ultimate reality but you're saying that i think that what you're saying is is that no once it actually becomes to us something more along the lines of uh i guess of a deception it plays that role but of course we always have to qualify that and say god's good you know god has created the world good god's the created language that we do in fact god's grace is universally available i don't i don't mean to to say any of that's not the case But yeah, that there's a lie that has been foisted upon us. And the evidence of that lie is that people are taking death up into themselves. And what that means is that people are masochistic, they're murderous, they're psychotic, uh, they're neurotic. And I think that the Bible gives us a description of why. It gives us a description of what went wrong. And the great tragedy is that in confusing the problem with the solution, we've missed the prognosis that's given to us in the New Testament, that I think we can actually say why people are sick, or, you know, begin to say, and that that Christ addresses the human predicament in all of its phases, in, in every way that we might describe it. I mean, it's such a it's such a big claim that it's almost like you know. But I, I think that we can do the same thing with just the world, right? Like we can misapprehend 
you know, we can, we can not see God, you know, or we can see the world as something to be dominated or to be exploited or whatever. In other words, like we, just like language, just like the law, even the earth, it's like if we have a misorientation to it or even to our neighbor, that we're fundamentally deceived about, you know, the nature of reality. I think that that's what your book really, I, unless I'm misunderstanding, I think that the claim of your book is that we're fundamentally deceived. And so that if we work from that starting point, that we're just going to misapprehend reality, ourselves, our neighbor, God, the earth, the law, language, everything. And so isn't that the point of your book is that like we need a new subjectivity almost, or, or we need like a new orientation to sort of bring us into contact with the reality of things. And for me, that reality is, is that God is everywhere present and filling all things. If that's not been revealed to you, and if you don't have, if you don't, you don't have that as sort of your foundation, you're going to quite literally just misinterpret reality. Yeah, and yeah, I think that's it. I think, uh, and that is, isn't that the message of the New Testament? That sin is always going to be linked to deception. That you know, Paul says that sin deceived me in regard to the law. That's all I'm doing. I think this is a summation. And I think that what has been rediscovered in Hegelian Lutheran theology and in psychoanalytic theory, and that's all that they're saying. They're saying, well, we're just reading Paul. And what Paul is saying is there's a fundamental deception in human subjectivity in which we are deceived in regard to the symbolic order, to the law, to language. And I'm not saying that that deception, that we don't have truth, but the truth about ourselves is the truth that may be lacking, that there's all sorts of truths that we can come to. I'm not saying anything like that. You know, I, the, a good Hindu knows to look left and right when he crosses the street. We all have access to certain basic truths. But I think that the truth about the human predicament and its solution has come to us in the revelation of Christ. And I'm not even saying that parts of that may not be available elsewhere, but as I understand it, this is what this, this is the explanation for the work of Christ is to expose to us and heal us the idea, yeah, as you say it there, that we've traded the truth for a lie. That's what Paul says, or as David put it, uh, that it turns out to be much worse than we thought. What we would tend to do is just cling to a kind of given understanding. And I think that what we're describing is the, the need for an apocalyptic breaking in of God. And I think that's what we have in, in the New Testament. I have some questions about like the, the chapter, but, and I'm new to this kind of maybe this approach or, or I, I mean, I'm excited to just continue to read, but I was just going to talk about um, radical theology. I have this book. It's kind of like an introduction to radical theology by Jeffrey Robbins, and you probably have heard of Caputo, John Caputo. Yeah, yeah. Before, and so just I, I was just wondering, like, there are theologians that are gonna kind of stay with Hegel and Nietzsche and Marx, right? And like they're right. gonna, they're not gonna, they're gonna, um, they're gonna glean from the psychoanalytic tradition this this idea that truth is this kind of gap in re in reality or that that we need to just have kind of a recognition of our own finitude or like there is no transcendence. There's no big other that's going to bring us more fossil fuels or whatever. Like, it's not like it's, this is just how it, it is. And 
then, you know, like as Caputo says, God does not exist. He insists. So then, and Le- I, I wrote on Levinas, there's also a post-Holocaust Jewish ethic that kind of says that, you know, God as an, on, as an on, uh, ontological being is no, is no more, right? And so what we are to do is to carry out God's vision into the world of Shalom, but kind of like we, and there's also a great book by Richard Carney called The God Who May Be. And it fits with our very, like, if you, in the church, in the Matthew 25, like when you do these things, then you kind of render God present in the world. I'm excited to see where you go with it and everything like that. But I'm, I'm, I have been reading in the last like year or maybe more, a few people that, that are in, staying within that, maybe influenced by Zizek, maybe and the kind of new trend of Hegelian uh, theology and things like that. But it seems like, uh, uh, I don't know if other, do others follow this radical theology or, or do you have any thoughts about, that's why I said it's not, it's not related to the text. It's just sort of a separate. No, I like, I like the question, you know, with Caputo, there's a whole, you know, actually this is the way that postmodernism, who is it? Mark Taylor that first yeah, does Mark Dar- Taylor does Derrida, and of course Derrida himself didn't like Mark Taylor's interpretation of what he's doing. Derrida's estimate of, estimate of Mark Taylor, he had just reified death and nothingness. And so Derrida just thought there was a basic misunderstanding of what he was up to. I'm always suspicious that this is, uh, Caputo is kind of fascinating, but I'm afraid they're all doing the same thing. In other words, there is a kind of reification of death there is a kind of need for looking into the abyss and imagining that that itself is in some way the way in which we're going to gain the truth. Who's the guy, Tim, out in the West Coast? Peter Rollins. Uh, Peter Rollins? Yeah, Rollins, Rollins, yeah. He just, you know, as, as far as I can tell, he's just doing Zizek straight up. Yeah, he's, he's from Ireland, but yeah. But I'm he, he lives in California now. Yeah. Yeah, as yeah. We I, always, as we all wish we did. Yeah. I understand there is that. And I would say that what I'm doing is slightly different. But in a a sense, let me state that I have great empathy. I actually preached a sermon this Sunday and it kind of scared me and I I drew back from it a little bit. Luckily, I don't think anybody understood what in the world I was talking about. If you take the the story of The Matrix, the movie The Matrix, that wasn't actually my sermon, but it, it it fits. And that is that, you know, that you're taken out of the warm saline solution, the warm bath, but then what you're left with is the desert of the real. And, and of course, what I would want to say to Rollins and all these guys is we really can't live in the desert. We can't live in the abyss. We can't live without human community. We can't live without a horizon of meaning. But at the same time, I think that what Christ does for us is enable us to travel through the desert. It enables us to to question horizons of meaning. This is kind of my understanding of, of history, that we've truly passed through. The Enlightenment is finished. Modernity is finished. I think that Nietzsche's pronouncement of the death of God as it pertains to a particular understanding, maybe the most popular understanding of God, that is just reality. It has come true. 
secularism is the case. And so as Christians, our goal is not to turn back the clock. It's not to go back as if that's not the case, as if we, you know, we could do if we could just focus on the family, restore the 1950s, raise up the right right wing Catholicism, everybody believe or you know whatever form of fundamentalism it might be, what people want to do is go back and return to a previous horizon of meaning. I think as Christians in this age, we have to just acknowledge that horizon, Nietzsche's phrase for it, we have been unloosed from our sun, that we are hurling through space. But I still think, I think that there is an enabling in Christianity for us to be able to do that without giving up to despair or just imagining that the abyss is the case or that nothingness and death really is the answer or that re-mythologizing or, in other words, it's not that I don't have a sympathy for this journey. We're all on this journey, and we, we have to acknowledge, but I think that, you know, this is sort of the point that Hart was making. Christendom was ended by Christianity, and so the deconstructive force that we're dealing with, the naming of the idols, is ultimately that of Christ himself. He's the one who challenged the Jews in the temple and, you know, their understanding of the law. He's the one who challenged the priesthood. He's the one who challenged these mediating roles, uh, authoritative mediating roles. And so I think we, our tendency is to want those things. We need the priests and the robes and the, the structures in our kind of infantile desire to return to the warm bath uh, that we were taken out of the womb. This is Freudian psychology that we would all just go back to the womb. I asked how the basic misorientation, deception that we have, how it shows itself with regards to what we try and do with the Bible or how we try and approach it or use it. Oh my goodness, what am I going to do this Sunday? <laughs> you just messed up my whole preaching program for the whole year. <laughs> Well, I, I'm afraid that we can do with the Bible what the philosophers would do with language, Yeah, that we can reify it. I'm afraid this is what biblical inerrancy has tended to do. So I think that's step one. The other thing is that there is the tensions that we're describing. You know, we live between, we live in a, in a between now and not yet. We're kind of between the Babel and Jerusalem. We're between the city of man and the city of God. And I'm afraid we can read Scripture as if it's lacking in that same tension. The tension's there in the Bible, and we just have to acknowledge that it's there. That the Bible, it says, you know, in one place that you offer these sacrifices, and then another you have prophets in the voice of God saying, I never asked for any sacrifices. And so I think we, we, our tendency will to be with, to withdraw from those tensions, and we should not. We should just acknowledge that they're there and that, in fact, Christ is killed because people refuse to acknowledge the tensions that he's bringing out within Judaism, that that is the reason they killed him. The Jews don't want that kind of disruption. But I think as Christians, we have to live in that kind of tension and we have to acknowledge it. And we can't just fall back into fundamentalism or 
right-wing Catholicism, I'm, you know, the right-wing Catholics seem to be the most extreme in a lot of this. A fundamentalism that I myself have come through. So it's not like I haven't, I haven't been subject to this. I was interested by his question, so I didn't know exactly, you know, what he was thinking with it, but I was just going off of some of the conversations, well, that you've kind of had recently too, about, you know, reading the Old Testament allegorically or um, in, in different ways like that, or just approaching the written word of God and almost idolizing that and saying, well, this is what I want to do with my life in this situation, whether it's revenge or, you know, murder or whatever. And you can go to the Old Testament and choose whatever you want out of there to justify your thoughts in that moment. So in that way, the disorientation that we bring into this world through sin shows up in the reading of the Bible in that way. You know, what we're describing, we're reorienting ourselves in language. Obviously, we can't return to some sort of rationalistic autonomy. But nonetheless, I think uh, I kind of like this about the thing that Hart was saying and that we're describing. You know, the, the thing that w has been taken from us in Calvinism, meaning has been let loose so that good and evil don't really mean very much anymore. We need to in some way acknowledge that a God who is genocidal, that probably ain't good, <laughs> right? A God who tells them to bash the baby's heads in, or a God who punishes people, you know, eternally and delights in the, or some of this may be imagery that is or is not. So I think we have to acknowledge that in Christ, we've been given an understanding of who God is that was not there previously, so that there is real progress in Revelation. The Bible itself says that. Hebrews says that in times past, God spoke to us, to us you know, through the prophets, and now he's spoken to us in Christ. To imagine that those are of equal weight is to do a disservice to the Bible. And so Christ is the hermeneutic key, the person of Christ does give us an interpretive key into Scripture. Now, that's kind of vague and abstract, but, but uh, that's, of course, what the early church was doing. Origen did not hesitate to say that the book of Joshua, it's not worthy of, of who Christ is, apart from an interpretation of Christ as Joshua. Whether you agree with Origen's interpretation, I think the sentiment is there. We have to be able to say in Christ, there are some things that are there in the Bible that are not worthy of who God is. Yeah, have you read, uh, it's a great book, uh, The Prince of the World. He, he does a, a genealogical study of the figure of Satan and kind of tries to show a number of things, including how over time God began to take on attributes that you could not but describe as satanic, you know, evil, evil attributes such as genocide, you know, inflicting horrible things on people. And he sort of tra traces that historically. Yeah, it's a great book. Kotzko I actually used quite a bit in my work. And he, because he does, he, he's very good at reading Zizek. And of yeah. course, he's doing, he's doing a lot of translating of Agamben. In spite of uh, who Agamben, you know, I, he is such a compelling writer. That may sound strange because I assume he's a complete atheist, but nonetheless, that he, his, his little histories are quite compelling. 
And so, yeah, that, that it sounds like Kotsko is picking up on that kind of key. Well, I, I imagine Agamben, like most Europeans, are probably Christian atheists, aren't they? Or atheist Christians. Like they have Christian convictions, or, or not, not convictions, Christian inclinations uh, somewhere deep inside of them. I can't claim to ever looked up his biography. I remember Connor Cunningham. When, you know, Cunningham was one of my advisors. And he, he just thought Agamben, he said, uh, I, and I didn't understand the statement at the time, and then I should have asked him. He said, if there's anybody that's demonic, it's, it's uh, Giorgio Agamben. I don't know what he meant by that, just that here, here is a guy who is a powerful thinker and writer. So. I really liked his book, The Time That Remains. Yeah, yeah, no, I've, Agamben has put me on to a lot of things. He, you know, he wrote a little book years ago called Death and Language that I just think is excellent. Yeah. Isn't there a book called Kingdom? Uh, Kingdom and... Kingdom and the Glory. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that he does, uh, he does a whole thing on glory. That's actually, yeah. again, quite good. Yeah. Mm. That's right. It's like, what, what is glory? You know, yeah. what, what does it mean? Yeah. It's like a catch-all. It's like a... What's he doing there? He's saying that it's almost like this sort of transcendent category that's underpinning everything, but it's actually nothing or something like that. It is a completely constructed category. And of course, I think you can read so much of a Agamben and agree with him and say, yeah, but that's not the end of the story. Christ is the glory. Yeah, I think there truly is glory. But mm. what he's describing is the glory that most of us are familiar with, the glory of the pop star, the glory of the politician, the, you know, Kim Jong-un, uh, that for if you're North Korean, he seems to have an essence that just, he just probably just glows for people. Kind of the way that kings probably used to uh, in the West. And so I think that you've got to acknowledge that and, and then say, yeah, whatever glory truly is, that ain't it. But we have to acknowledge that that is, that misunderstood glory is pervasive well i'm going to say so it's something about um or like the task is a, is a little bit of about um not reconstituting but like re, maybe reconfiguring a new horizon of meaning or something that that you said is enabled within christianity so that that is a kind of kind of a deconstruction in the sense that it's your something hidden within the tradition or overlooked within the tradition needs to be uh, like has been crusted over and needs to be, I think what Jean-Luc Nancy describes deconstruction as like loosening the assembled structures of any given thing, right? So it's like you're loosening it up to to, ha to have a new to new meaning from the wells below uh, to to come to come forth, right? So it's like there's something within our kind of Christendom reality that that is being not recognized, like that Christ gives us some kind of new possibilities, some sort of new life or something that has been, so that's like, that's like we need a new kind of horizon or would you say Christ is the hermeneutical key? So like a, a Christocentric hermeneutic, something like this. Yeah. And I don't think we know quite where that's taking us. In other words, I'm, I don't think we need to pin that down. We don't have to own that yet, that we can hold that in kind of loosely and we just keep going down this road, but we we uh, we just got to trust that that our guide, and not necessarily understand the destination ourselves. Maybe that's too much 
for many people, that it's too ambiguous. To my mind, that's where we are in this age, is that trusting in Christ, having faith in Christ, to me means that I do not have to trust in the horizons of meaning that we tend to provide, that I think, in fact, have tended to obstruct this pilgrimage. Pilgrimage is the wrong word. You know, Van Hooser would use the word mission journey uh, that we're on. I think we're on, a, we're on a journey that we should not be uncomfortable being a little unclear as to, to where it leads or, or how it works itself out. Ontotheology will give you all the answers. Calvinism will give you all the answers. The old mainline churches, there is no ambiguity. You just, you got the answers and here they are. But I think what we're describing is that we, in this age, we need to be a little bit comfortable in the desert. So going back to um, uh, radical theology, I'm not an expert in radical theology, but I, I have found reading some of it helpful in letting myself be comfortable in the desert and then looking to Christ and trying to keep moving forward. Um, so so that, was, that was part of my journey of deconstruction. That was helpful. Yeah, I, I'm with you. That, that, uh, you can't read a lot of Zizek and just dwell there. And it, you eventually, <laughs> it's going to get to you after a while. Uh, and then I got to have I got to have Matt call me up. And I don't mean that facetiously. I think that the fellowship that we have, the the friendships that we have, the inter human interaction that we need to be continually brought back to that. That we're rooted in, we're embodied, and and that our experience of Christ is embodied. Our tendency towards abstraction, you know, this is Kierkegaard. Uh, I I think would take us out of the body. But I think that this thing is one that we're forced back to the warmth. You know, I want to gather around the fire with you guys. Uh, Don't send me out into the darkness by myself. Uh, We need one another in this thing. I understand what the abyss can look like. You can't get fascinated with it as if that has the answers or is an end in and of itself. Is that too dark? Sometimes I say things more darkly than I. I think that it's right. That's where Christ meets us, right? Is right on the edge of the abyss. I think that's it. It's not that we need it, the abyss, but if we don't see it, I'm not sure we can't. We understand what it is that Christ is saving us from. Isn't that uh, what's that Psalm 107 or 108? You know that there. It's all these different pictures of the abyss. It's like, well, we were out in the middle of the ocean and the waves were crashing and we were, we cried out to the Lord and he saved us. And then we were in the dungeon and, uh, you know, we didn't have any food and we were out in the desert. And there's all these different, they're, they're, they're like, in, you know, they're at the precipice and they cried out to the Lord and he saved us. It's a really, it's a really great illustration, I think. Yeah, I think that's it. And what Hegel would do, what, you know, the, uh, unfortunately, I think, is that to say, oh, we need the abyss, we need the darkness, we need to launch out to see uh, and, and experience that to find God. No, I, I don't think that God is in the abyss. Uh, there is the sense that our own emptying out of a world of meaning that, that we may have constructed uh, does then point us to the only resolution that I know of. 
Uh, that's what I have for tonight, if everybody's happy. David, I mainly wanted to make you happy, and I'm not sure I've, I've accomplished it. Your, your voice always makes me happy. <laughs> I, I was going to say, I, um, I, I mean, the technical is, is you know, de I think deconstruction is so necessary, which I've done that over the last, you know, whatever, five years of my life, um, which then hopefully the reconstruction just is so much more beautiful. Um, so going through the dark's a, a, a good thing. You know, we got to come out in, in into the light. So, yeah, yeah. Paul, anytime you talk, I'm 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 happy. I'm just mesmerized. <laughs> oh, oh, I'm glad I got the recorder on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's, it's good seeing everybody. You guys. Thanks. Yeah. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website forgingplowshares.org.